Good morning. Today's reading is from, from Job. It's chapter 1, verses 6 to 22, and it's on page 417 of these Black Bibles. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? Have you blessed the works you have blessed the works of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land? But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, All that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall, shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. This is God's word. We're beginning a new series this today. We're beginning a new series today. Six different sermons on something we're calling six questions Christians ask. These are Questions that Christians struggle with. If you're new to the faith, or even if you've been in the faith a long time, these are questions that we struggle to answer well. Some of the questions that we're going to talk about, we may not know anything about. How is the world going to end? But these are questions that are important to our faith. We can't just leave them aside. We must go to them and answer them with faithfulness. With clarity. This morning we're going to jump right into the deep end. We're jumping right into the deep end this morning and we're asking the question, why suffering? But before we do, let's pray. God, we come before you once again humbled. Humbled that you would have us go to your word. 
that you would have us come before these revealed truths about, your, about yourself, about your character, about the state of things, about how we play a part. God, we cannot be disinterested. We cannot, be, we cannot see ourselves on the sidelines. God, you envision us as we come before your word. You envision us to know you, to trust you, and to live in line with our creation. And so God, be with us now. May the Holy Spirit come to us and meet us and show us again your Son, Jesus Christ. We need you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Suffering is too deep, too painful, too profound for pat answers. Suffering is too big, too difficult, too important for simplistic, shallow, pat answers. Suffering. Suffering it. It's probably the greatest question that anyone asks in this world. The hardest question that we ask Christians or those who are not Christians. Especially those who believe and they long to believe and trust God. They, they ask this question out into the sky. Why suffering? They ask it before God himself. Why suffering? Why am I suffering so greatly? Why is my child suffering? Why is the world suffering. It is such an important, profound question because it brings us to the very edges of faith and eternity and God. And so why do we settle for simplistic answers? Why do we offer ourselves, offer others, pat solutions to life's greatest conundrums? Now you can look at this in a lot of ways, but I think that we need to be honest about ourselves in the church. Christians offer often simplistic answers to this very difficult question. We, we say to those who suffer, it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. God is in control. God is using this for your glory, for your good and his glory. Sometimes we just say, you know, Romans 8, 28. We don't even say the, the words of the verse. We just say the text. We just say the verse, Numbers, Romans 8, 28. Is that good enough? Worse, we tell people, maybe, they don't, they're not, they don't have enough faith. They are suffering because they are not praying hard enough. They are suffering because they're, they're not doing what they should be doing. Is that good enough? Is that sufficient for our Suffering? I, I don't think so. And yet that is what we often offer up to ourselves and to others. That's the Christian response. The secular response is different, of course. There's basically two ways they respond to the problem of suffering in the world. And they're, they're two sides of the same coin. One side says that suffering simply disproves God, right? David Hume, the the famous philosopher, postulated it this way. If God is capable of preventing suffering, but he doesn't, then he is evil, he's malevolent. But if he is willing but, but unable to prevent suffering, he is impotent, he is weak. In other words, for God to be God, for him to be the sovereign ruler of the universe, the perfect, holy God of the universe, he must be both good and powerful. 
but based on the suffering in the world, a being like this cannot exist. Suffering, therefore, disproves God. One atheist philosopher puts it a little more starkly. He says it this way. If God exists and he is good and powerful, why didn't he create a world in which Hitler planted rows of tulips instead of murdering millions of Jews? That's a serious accusation. But I I can't help but think that it's somewhat simplistic. In order to say this, You essentially have to take the place of God. In order to say this about the world and about what God could be or should be, you are taking his place. You are setting the rules for justice in the world. In other words, you're saying that suffering is wrong because you know that it is wrong. All suffering is pointless because you have deemed it pointless. The answer to this is, who are you to say that just because you do not see any good in suffering, that there's nothing meaningful behind it, that therefore there is no reason for it? Would not God's purposes and ways be higher than ours? And there's another side to the coin. They say that because there is no God, then all of suffering is, of course, meaningless, pointless. And they say that this because The suffering that we see, that the suffering we experience is merely a byproduct of the natural world. The violence that we see and experience, the violence we commit, simply the result of chaotic disorder, an evolving universe, an evolving species. Suffering, in other words, is perfectly natural, but totally meaningless. Or at least it only has at the very most, at the most, It has the meaning that you give to it, just you. Richard Dawkins puts it this way, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Now he could be right. But if he's right, then all of our pain, all of our suffering, all of our loss All of the death is pointless. It has no purpose. And that seems to me to be an inadequate answer. For thinking, feeling, spiritual people, that is inadequate. And it's because when we feel pain, when we feel deep regret and loss, when a loved one dies, Something inside of us cries out instinctively, there has to be more than this. Suffering is too deep, too painful, too important for simplistic, pat answers. And that's why we are tackling it this morning. So what's the answer? What's the answer? So the book of Job, the book of Job, it stands apart Really, not just in the Bible, but in all of literature. It's different than any other book in the Bible. It doesn't fit into any category. It is part song, part poem, part history. But what really sets it apart is the way that it deals, the way it confronts the problem of suffering because it does not offer pat answers. It does not provide answers that are common to us. The way Job talks about suffering, what it displays, is not how we naturally think about suffering in this world and even in the Christian world. One scholar said this, 
There is no book of the Bible. There is no piece of literature in the whole world that addresses the question of why we suffer with the intellectual and philosophical integrity and deafness, with the emotional and dramatic realism, and with the spiritual wisdom as the book of Job. And so we're coming up, in other words, to God's answer to us, his revealed word to the question of why suffering. If God is real, and if suffering is not meaningless, then we will find our answers here. Now this is heavy, but my prayer is that this will bring us great joy and delight. And so three points this morning as we walk through this. Three points, very simple. The purpose, the goal, and the ultimate answer to suffering. The purpose of suffering the goal of suffering, and the ultimate answer to suffering. One, the purpose of suffering. So what is Job about? If you've read it, what is Job about? In one sense, it's, it's pretty straight ahead, pretty simple. It's about this guy named Job, not Job, Job. And Job loved God. He feared God. And then He was also a great man. He was fabulously wealthy. Lots of land, animals, money, and children. That's the first part. We we learn about him. But but then the second part is that he suffers. He, He suffers in ways that many of us have never seen or will ever, ever experience. He's left with his whole life ravaged. And, and then after this first chapter, then he gets ravaged physically and emotionally and spiritually. And then he's left alone and with his three, as one person said, stupid friends to try to work it out. That's the whole book. And then at the very end, he has this astounding conversation with God himself. Now, this first chapter is utterly unique, and I would say this whole, this whole book is utterly unique for how it begins. Because the second part is not just that Job suffers. It's not just that Job is wealthy and then he suffers. No, there's a, a middle section, a second part, where we get to see behind the scenes, behind the scenes of what is going on. We are peering into heaven itself, and we see this interchange, this interplay between God and Satan. It's the royal court. All the angels are passing before the Lord and Satan comes in. He's the fallen angel, of course. God says, where have you been? And Satan replies, I've been everywhere. I've been been all over the earth walking to and fro. And then God asks him to do something, to consider someone. Job 1.8, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. So God, he's, he's putting it out in front of him. He's asking him to assess his servant, Job. Now, you can anticipate Satan's answer, can't you? You can anticipate what he's going to say. He's not going to say, yeah, he's a great guy. No, he is the ultimate cynic. He is first and foremost a pessimist. And so Satan will not believe anything good about Job, what does verse 9 say? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has and on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and all of his possessions have increased in the land. And then, as if, and then as if to say, Put your money where your mouth is, God. Verse 11, But stretch out your hand 
and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. So when you become a dad, when you become a mom, something takes over you. Something happens when you have children. You get protective. No one had to tell me how to do it. No one had to teach me how to protect my kids. I just did it. I just do it. When my kids are attacked, when I feel they are being threatened, I act often instinctively to help them, to shelter them, to protect them. I want to care for them. I want them to thrive. I will sacrifice my own pride and even my own body to keep them safe. God hears the worst accusation against his servant. He knows the heart of Satan and what Satan wants to do to him. And God's response should take our breath away. Verse 12, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. And so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord And you know what happens next? Job is made to suffer. This is not what we would expect from a good and loving God. But listen, that is so important. The response from God right there gives us at least part of our answer to why suffering this morning. This is no pat answer. Now, in order to get to this, to to answer that, we need to see several things here. The first thing I want you to notice is that The person who says, make Job to suffer, is not God. It is Satan. God did not come up with a plan to make Job suffer. It was Satan. It was Satan's idea. And listen, that is a foundational idea to Christianity, isn't it? God is not the author of evil. God did not conceive of sin. Unlike some other religions which say that the God force is both good and bad. He's darkness and light. No, no, no. The the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the God of Christianity, is that he is only good, perfectly loving. And this means that God did not create the world to be bad. He did not create the world to go wrong. He didn't create the world with disease and death and deep disappointment. No, he created it to be good. But then it went bad. At the persuading of Satan, evil was breathed into the world. At the leading of Satan, evil after the fact was woven into the very fabric of the universe. Now, maybe you don't believe it happened this way, but I bet you believe the basic facts that things are not the way they they should be today. It feels like things should be a lot different on this planet. There was a movie a couple decades ago. It's called Grand Canyon. Not many people saw it. But there's this amazing scene where Kevin Klein, the actor, his character, he's driving in his car. And some, for some reason, he's in some uh, terrible part of town, some terrible part of the city. And sure enough, his car breaks down right in the middle there. And he's sticking out like a sore thumb. And he, he knows that it's not good. And he goes, calls, tries to call a tow truck and he runs back to his car. He tries to hide, but he's too conspicuous. He stands out and some gangbangers driving down the road. They see him and they come up to him and they start to harass him. They start knocking on the window saying, get out of the car. We like your car. We want to steal it. 
and so tense. And he gets out, and then he's standing in front of him, and you're sure he's going to die. And then right then, tow truck pulls down the road right in front, backs his car right up to Kevin Klein's car, and Danny Glover hops out. Remember Danny Glover? He's not around much anymore. Danny Glover hops out. He's the tow truck driver. He starts to do his work, and, and these guys are not happy that he's there. They wanted his car. And he says, hang on, man. I'm just doing my job. They're not going to have any of it. And so Danny, he, he grabs the person he thinks is the leader of this little gang, and he pulls him aside, and he looks at him, and, and he says this. This is verbatim. He says, man, the world ain't supposed to be like this. Maybe you don't know that. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. That dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything is supposed to be different than what it is. I think that the first thing that we realize, that we figure out as people, as children, as babies, is that things are not the way they are supposed to be. Right when we come out of the womb, we go, hang on, this is not cool. We are so warm and cozy inside, and then we go through this tight canal, and then we come out, and it's freezing cold, and it's painful, and, the, and everything is bright, and we cry out. This is not the way it is supposed to be. And then our lives confirm this over and over and over again. Everything is supposed to be different than what it is, man. This reveals another point, though. This is so important. This is not a pat answer. Suffering is universal. In other words, suffering happens to everyone. No one is immune to suffering. You cannot avoid it in this life. Just look at the life of Job. He was picked very specifically. He was chosen very specifically because of his great moral and physical wealth. Job was the greatest dude. He had everything. He was totally insulated. He didn't have to deal with anything else that everyone else did. He was the best. He had the greatest morals, the greatest faith, the greatest wealth. And he suffered money, things, personal greatness. Even perfect personal faith does not keep you away from suffering. Suffering is universal. I'm not much of a, a People magazine reader. Can you believe that? I don't read People magazine regularly, but for some reason, one ended up in my house. I think my mom brought it. I think she brought it, and I'm eating a sandwich or something, and it's sitting there, and I'm Okay, I'll open this, check it out, start reading People magazine. And it was a, an article, it was interesting to me, it was an article from Jennifer Garner. And she was talking about her, her separation from Ben Affleck. But as I started to think about it, I was just thinking about their life, about the life of Ben Affleck and Jennifer Garner. It, it's so removed from mine, their fabulous fame and wealth. They never suffer for want of anything. Starting to think about their house, what their house must look like, how big it is, how many rooms, how many pools they have. What a fabulous life. And as I'm reading her talk about what she was going through and their separation, I thought about that house and I thought about them. 
I thought about the pain that they must have felt inside that little bubble. The pain that they must have felt as they struggled to make sense of the separation that they were going through. That's real pain. Suffering is universal. Suffering happens to everyone. Things are not the way they are supposed to be. Suffering is universal. And now notice this last thing. This is no pat answer. God is in control. Despite all of this, God is totally, fully in control. Satan says to God, listen, if you let your servant suffer, he will renounce you, he will forsake you. And God says, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Everything that he possesses, it's yours. You can take it from him. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. What is God doing here? He's driving the bus. He's saying, Satan, you're on a leash. I will allow you to do some, but not all things. That is how God is. Satan is not God's counterpart. Satan is on a leash. He can only do what God will allow him to do. God, despite the fallenness of the world, he is sovereign. He is in control. And now we've got to go back to this question that we started with. Why would God allow this? Why would he allow his servant Job to suffer like this? He could have stopped it. He could have said, no, get away. And so does this not prove God's cruelty? Does it not prove his capriciousness? Listen, many people stop here. They see a God who would allow, would sovereignly ordain suffering like this, and they say, sorry, can't. I can't buy into that. I can't believe a God like that. But I think that's a mistake. We have to push on through one more door. And we must ask the question, why would God do this? Why would he allow Satan to make Job suffer? And here's the answer. I'm going to say it as plainly as possible. God allows Satan to do what will produce the opposite. God only allows Satan to do what will produce the opposite. Satan has a goal in mind. He wants some sort of outcome. God allows him to do it. Only to the degree that it will thwart his plans. As one pastor says it, God only allows Satan enough rope to hang himself. Satan thinks that he has God in a corner. He says, finally, I'm going to prove to you that humans are a waste and that you, God, are a fraud. And what Satan cannot possibly know is that by making Job to suffer, he is going to start a ripple. He's going to drop a pebble in the water that will ripple out, not just in his life, not just in the life of Job, but out centuries and millennia. What are we studying right now? We are studying the book of Job. God's suffering, God's allowing of this suffering to happen started something, started something amazing that would eventually counteract the plans of Satan. This is not what Satan wanted. But this is what God wanted. And so listen, we have to hold both ideas in our hands. God, he hates evil and suffering. 
He hates it. He does not want it to be this way. And yet he will use it to counteract the plans of the evil one. Now listen, this has not just happened in the life of Job. We must say that this is how God works in all people. God only allows suffering to the degree that it will counteract the effect of Satan's work in our lives and the sin in our hearts. Why suffering? What is the purpose of suffering? To eventually produce in God's people the opposite. Okay, two, the goal of suffering. Two, the goal of suffering. So again, what does Job think will happen when he makes Job to suffer? He has this plan. He says, I'm going to make Job suffer. And he thinks that something is going to happen. Well, he thinks that Job will forsake God. And the reason that he thinks this is, is because he sees Job's life. He sees it. It's laid out before him. It's obvious. And he says that God did it for him. And what did God do for him? He made him this great life. He says, you have put a hedge around him, this hedge of protection. He has never had to suffer anything. He leads a perfect life. You have given him so much wealth, so much land, so many animals, amazing children. And so all I have to do is take that away and he will despair. He will lose hope. He will abandon his belief in you. In other words, Satan, he's saying something important. He believes that Job's joy and identity are found in things. They are found in the gifts that God gives him and not in God himself. Verse 9 says it so plainly. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? In other words, does Job love you for the things that he gets from you? Or does he love you for your sake? Does he love you for the gifts or for you, the giver? In other words, Satan believes that Job is using God. He wants to expose that. He thinks that by making him suffer, Job will turn his back on God. He will finally prove that Job is a fraud, that he never loved God really at all. And God lets him do it. If we believe that the purpose in suffering is to get Satan to shoot himself in the foot, then when we suffer, something unimaginably good will happen if we let it. We will fear and love God. If God exists, then our ultimate relationship, or then our the relationship with him must be our ultimate goal. Hear that again. If God exists, then our relationship with him must be our ultimate goal. God is the source of all life and meaning. At his right hand, Psalm 16 says, are everlasting pleasures. Our goal in life is to tap into that. He is the God of all life and meaning. And our lives are meant to be connected to his, tied up in his and listen, we need to give the devil his due here. He's often right about us. He is often right about how we respond in this world to suffering. We do not truly love him. We often love him only for what he provides. And listen, that is a crazy idea. 
So I was at Panera the other day, and I was sitting in the window, and this car pulls up. And it was not a car like you would see usually in Plastow. It was this amazing, sleek sports car, looked brand new, and it was a, a BMW. I could see that. It was so adorable. This, this little old couple gets out of it. They were probably over 85, I think. It's just amazing. And I knew that it was a different car when the doors didn't open out, but they opened up, right? You remember seeing that? It's like, okay, this is, this is different. This is expensive, like a DeLorean. This is, this is expensive. And so as it drove away, I actually saw the back of it. If anyone knows anything about cars, it was a BMW i8, something like that. And I looked it up. Starts at $140,000. Starts there. And so everyone, as they get out of this car, as it pulls up, they're looking at it like, whoa, this is different. The little lady actually got in after the fact and took off. Saw that car. I'm thinking about this section of my sermon. And it occurred to me that we often treat God like that, like we would, he is a BMW. And here's what I mean. We often treat him like a, a BMW that we use a $140,000 BMW i8 to do a, and to complete a paper route in the mornings. We use that car to do our paper route in the mornings so that we can enjoy a pinto on the weekends. I know this is a stupid illustration, but just go with me. My, my dad had a pinto. That's why I'm saying that. He, he thought it was cool. It was never cool. It's never cool. Pintos are the worst cars ever. We, we have this, this, this BMW. It's amazing. And we use it to get something that is not. That is how we treat God. So much more important than that illustration. The state of things is that we look at God and we say, you are not good enough. You're not good enough, but what you give, that is good enough. And so if you take that away from me, I don't think I can handle that. Our hearts are so corrupted that we cannot see the utter value of the Lord of Lords. We cannot enjoy the great wealth of life with the King of Kings. In other words, Satan nails the problem in our hearts. He gets it. He understands us. You think that Job is going to last? You think that by taking everything away, he's still going to love you? There is no way. Without his children, his health, his stuff, you are wrong. And yet God allows him to suffer anyway. He will only allow Satan to do what will produce the opposite in Job's heart. And if we will let him, the same goes for us. He will only allow us to experience and endure what will turn our heart's affections upside down. His suffering will allow us finally to see him and savor him above all things. And this is why often suffering has very counterintuitive effects in our lives. Suffering we should expect always just to ruin us. But often it strengthens us. Suffering often produces not despair, but endurance. Not misery, but transformation. If you can get through it, it can make you 
great. The Bible is very forthright about this. You've probably heard these verses. Romans 5, 3, what does it say? Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Think about that. The love of God is experienced through our hope and our hope comes by way of suffering. 1 Peter 1.6 You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says that we are like pieces of metal that are being refined by fire. We are unformed, imperfect substances. We are being made perfect by the fires of pain and affliction. And the result is that you have great faith of more precious, preciousness than gold. Maybe Paul says it most plainly in 2 Corinthians 1. After describing the great suffering that he had endured... He says it had but one purpose, to make him rely on God. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Now listen, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. God does not like evil. He hates suffering and death. But he will use this fallenness, this fallenness of the world to save us. He will counteract Satan's devices. He will devices. He will use them against him to turn our hearts to him. The goal of suffering is nothing less than our perfect union with God. And I think Job understands this at some level. He is not perfect. He's not going to respond perfectly. But the first words out of his mouth are right. Listen to Job 1.20. Then Job arose. He tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then what does verse 22 say? In all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now just, just very quickly, notice Job's response to suffering. He is a godly man and he did not sin. He did not sin even in his incredible grief. Can you imagine seeing someone do this? After their grief to tear their robes and wail? We would probably look at him and go, man, you need to get your act together. That's not how God sees it. God knows that this place is not the way it is supposed to be. And he knows that we should respond to suffering in kind, with grief, with mourning. We must weep at injustice. We must mourn the lost loved, our lost loved ones. We must mourn when men in Baton Rouge and Minnesota die, when cops in Dallas are killed, when Dozens upon dozens of people are killed in a horrible act of terror in Nice. We weep, we mourn. God does not see that as sin. That is the proper response. What else does this say, though? 
Naked I came into this world, and naked I will leave. Tim Keller says about this verse that you must embrace the reality that you will not often know why you are suffering. You will very often in this life not know specifically why God is allowing you to suffer. Most people don't find out. And if you think about it, Job never found out. He did not know why he suffered. God didn't come to him at the end of the book and say, so, so listen, I, I, want, I want you to know something. I'm going to use this story. I'm going to use your life's example for the rest of the world. For, for the rest of time, you are going to be the example for suffering. I'm using you to teach a lesson. Does God say that? No. When Job basically says, why God? God says back to him, who are you to answer back to me? Naked I come into this world, and naked I leave it. We need to embrace this reality that we will often not get an answer to our suffering. And you embrace it because this is when you live by grace. When we do not need an answer, when we do not need to control God, when we can say we trust you totally, we are living by grace. This is the theology of mercy and grace here. And this is where we thrive. This is where we live. For when we are living by grace, we are living for him and him alone. Remember, that is the goal of suffering. Satan says, if I make Job to suffer, he will turn his back on you. God says, if I, will, if I allow them to suffer, that is when their hearts will find me. The goal of suffering is that we may see him as the ultimate prize, surpassing worth, and love him. Last point this morning. The ultimate answer to suffering. The ultimate answer to suffering. So we've been asking this question all morning long. Why suffering? Why do we suffer? I think that the biblical answer is the best one. Listen, we are just scratching the surface this morning. We are giving the answer, but it's kind of 30,000 feet. But I think it is the best one. It is not a pat answer. I think in a sense, therefore, it is enough, but also not so much. I think we need just a a little bit more. We need to anticipate. We need to see ahead to the final answer, especially when we are in the throes of pain and sorrow. Logic doesn't often help. Seeing and hearing Romans 8, 28 doesn't often help. We need to know down to our cores that he loves us, that he is really there, that he is with us, and that someday all will be made right. It's hard to deny that the worst era in the history of the United States was during the time of slavery, slavery in the world, chattel slavery. You've read the stories, you've seen the movies, you've seen the pictures. Black men and women and even black children, suffered in ways we will never fully comprehend. And yet did you know that many who went through these dark times had their faith strengthened? Many black men and women and children trapped in in suffering and slavery, their faith grew. Their faith grew deeply. How is that possible? Historians have noticed 
that slaves began to relate to Jesus. They saw him and they said, here is a guy that we can relate to. Because here is a man who was lynched. He was lynched. One historian put it this way. In the mystery of God's revelation, black Christians believe that just knowing that Jesus went through an experience of suffering in a manner similar to theirs gave them faith that God was with them. This faith in the God of the cross gave black Christians the courage to bear the suffering they were forced to bear. They did not see their suffering as good or right. It was a horrific injustice. It did not make any sense. They did not know why they suffered. They did not know why they were having to go through that. And yet they were strengthened. Why? Because they knew at the very least God had not left them. And friends, we cannot do better than that. In our suffering we must fix our eyes on the slain Son of God. In our grief, we must turn our hearts to the cross. Our great greatest question is not why. It is not why. It is, are you there? Our greatest question is, do you love us? And the cross answers us back. The slain And resurrected Son of God answers back. And he says, he whispers to us, Yes, I have not left you. I have not abandoned you. I hate suffering. I hate death. But I've sent Jesus for you. Believe it. Know it. It is reversing the curse in your life. The ultimate answer to suffering is Jesus. The ultimate end is that he will make it all right. He will make all things new where we will finally see him and know him and believe him and we will love him for his sake. Just listen to the words of Revelation 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God, it is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. May you believe that this morning. Let's pray. God, I don't know exactly how to pray at this point. My heart right now is inclined to pray for those who are suffering, those who have experienced tremendous loss and pain, those who have gone through weeks, days, months, years of physical trauma, those who have just recently lost loved ones, or those who feel the loss of their loved ones like they happened yesterday. God, you say you are the great comforter. So I would ask that you would comfort them today. That they would understand that there are not just pat answers to this, but there is a loving God behind all of this who is holding them and caring for them.
God, would you be with them? God, I would ask that you prepare us. Suffering is coming for many. I hate to say that out loud, but it is true. Suffering happens to everyone. It is universal, and so it is coming. Prepare us. Make us to know you so well that we would cling to you in our storms, in our pain, in our grief, in our misery. And God, I pray for this church. I pray that in our own suffering, that it would lead us to comfort those around us. That is the other reason why we are to suffer. Paul says that we, are, we suffer so that we can be a comfort to others. So would you enable us to do that? Would the pain and the grief and the turmoil and the loss that we've experienced mature us in a way, humble us in a way that we may be gracious and comfort with others, to comfort others. And God, now I just end by saying, would you give us eyes for you? God, we are so attached to this world. We are so attached to the things that we have. And we need eyes and hearts only for you. Would you provide that to us? In our despair and our grief, when you are all that we have left, would we know it? Would we believe it? And would we love you? In Jesus' name, amen.